Wait a second. This isn't your grandma's cancer show. Not your grandma's cancer show. Hi, this is Not Your Grandma's Cancer Show. I'm Tatum Duroc, and today we are talking about weight and weight loss because pretty much everything after a cancer diagnosis can contribute to weight gain. So between treatment, steroids, hormonal disruption, stress eating, my personal favourite, and of course now lockdown. And for many of us that are shielding, that has meant a reduction of all kinds of different activities. So sometimes it, you know, we've got more weight than we would like to be having, maybe more weight than is comfortable, but not always support for what to do when you're feeling tired, you're feeling depleted. It might feel insurmountable to be thinking about losing weight when you're on top of everything else. So I've got some great guests with me today. Um, We've got Victoria, who is about reframing your relationship with food, finding a bit more of a gentle, bit more of a nourishing approach. And Sarah, who's had cancer herself and now works with other people that have had cancer, getting them back into activity and exercise. And right beside me in the studio, I have Jamil. And Jamil, you were on a track of losing weight when lockdown happened. That's right. That's right. And sitting happened. So what what happened during <laughs> during that? Oh, I I gained lots of weight. I think is probably the most predictable thing um, that that happened. I I was really enjoying my routine actually before lockdown. You know, I was exercising. It was great. I um, made smarter choices about eating, and lockdown happened. And I think I might have had a little bit of a breakdown at the same time, and. Uh, I just started kind of stress eating or mm-hmm. comfort eating, as you will. And they're all the things that you would expect not to eat probably on a daily basis, like custard creams and bourbons and, you know, biscuits. Who doesn't love a biscuit? Oh, I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're in great company here for biscuit loving. Yeah. And, and and myself, I, I also ate in, in lockdown. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm so with you there. Um, and... From that time, so you're also immunocompromised, so you've also been additionally shielding. So along with the lockdown, as other people have started to come out of things, have you been able to get back to some of your previous activities? Uh, Only recently, actually, in the last uh, sort of few months, three, four months. But um, for the last, since February, whatever year it is, what year are we in? (laughs) Uh, in 2020, when we had lockdown, I started lockdown a little earlier than everyone else because I was immunocompromised and immunosuppressed. Um, so I was advised to do it earlier. But uh, I stayed in for lockdowns one and two inside my house. I didn't I didn't even venture out much into the garden. So because um, when I did, other people were out there. So mm. um, I stayed in. I was sedentary the whole time. And I am an office worker. I work from home. So it was just sitting, sitting, sitting. Sitting, yes. So tell me about what was going on in your life when you were diagnosed. So I was diagnosed uh, in 2015. Um, I had uh, just recently joined the company I work for now. I'd been there for about a year. And I was really, you know, kind of enjoying... I was getting into the rhythm of a new job and, you know, 
really kind of enjoying life actually and I, but I was pretty sick at the same time uh, and it took me quite a while to get a diagnosis um, and uh, eventually I, I got one and I started treatment pretty quickly actually about four weeks from diagnosis I started treatment. And tell me a little bit more about your diagnosis. So I uh, am, stroke was, a, a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma patient. Um, I was diagnosed as late stage, stage four, and I have had several uh, different types of chemotherapy, including a stem cell transplant. And I finally uh, got remission uh, a month before lockdown. <laughs> uh, so my lockdown gift was uh, to stay at home. With remission, basically. Oh, wow. Um, and I'm still in remission, which is great. In fact, in February, I shall be at two years, which will be fantastic mm-hmm. news, especially after five years of being in and out of treatment. You know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I try to, you know, I'm trying to move on from it and uh, get back and to life. And so in terms of medication, because we were chatting about what we had for breakfast this morning, <laughs> and you were saying um, that what you'd, what you'd taken for breakfast this morning was... Yeah, a bunch of steroids. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I'm, so because I'm a graft versus host patient, I had an allergenic stem cell transplant, so I had a donor um, who was my sister, and uh, I've had several problems. In fact, it hospitalised me in 20, at the end of 2019, uh, but with the hospitalisation came remission, so it was kind of a double-edged sword. Mm. Really. But uh, I have been on steroids ever since, uh, multiple types of steroids, And uh, that leaves me very um, vulnerable to anything, really. Uh, So shielding is sort of a way of life for me anyway, or had been throughout the the sort of treatment period. Um, But it was much harder, even with that years of experience prior to lockdown, to be sat there in remission thinking, yeah, you know, I can go outside, but no, I can't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and so, I mean, it really does sound like there's a number of factors that then come together in terms of weight because I imagine taking steroids and not you know um, having the same access to lots of activities yeah. so tell me a little bit about your um, your experience with weight so, so pre-diagnosis pre-diagnosis I, I've always been as a, as a sort of ad, let's, let's call it as an adult mm-hmm. um, of working age I was always quite overweight, but my weight was very static. You know, it, was, it had been the same probably for two decades, roughly speaking. Um, and it was always kind of, and you alluded to it earlier, a sort of priority basic base thing, right? So I wanted to settle several other things in my list of goals before I went to the, for the weight. Mm-hmm. And um, over the sort of treatment period over the years, I managed to achieve many of those goals. And so... I was left with very few to need to tackle. And I had then the capacity mentally and physically um, to deal with my weight problem. Um, And I did quite well in 2019. I'd managed to lose, let's say, 20 kilos or something like that, Um, uh, just from walking and making minor smart choices. Um, But not no real big change, just small things, right? Because I think that's, you know, a lot of people feel that they have to jump in and, like, almost, like, get really stressed out about (laughs) it and, like, do everything all at once, all at the same time. And if it doesn't happen really quickly, then it can be incredibly demoralising. But, like, it sounds like the, you know... That there were points in your journey that it was actually kind of easing into it? Like there were yeah. some smaller things I, that did pay off? I think 
I, my experience pre-cancer was definitely the experience that almost everyone else has, which mm. is I want to lose weight, so I crash diet or I take on some eating plan that is probably not appropriate for me, but it sounds good and I can lose weight immediately and, you know, achieve all those goals, right? Um, but uh, I came to the conclusion that those are not sustainable ways of living. Right. Um, I did a plan that's similar to keto a long time ago, before keto became a sort of really big thing. And I lost loads of weight, but I like carbohydrates. I don't know what to tell you, you know. Yeah. Who doesn't love some <laughs> chips, right? Um, and I like crisps and all the things. So uh, I, you know, and I eventually you put the weight back on because you go back to eating those things. And uh, over the last couple of years, I crystallised my understanding of what it is that I really needed to do. And uh, so I started to make very minor changes. So... Things like, as an example, not snacking uh, is a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but telling people they can't snack is kind of like telling them that they can't have the things that they want. Right? Yeah. So instead, I just moved the snacking to the meal time. That's what I did. Okay. So if I wanted some chocolate, I had to have it with my meal. Right. So it was like a reframing of it. Yeah. Yeah. Just you know, because you're trying to make your you're trying to make changes, and. Big changes are going to be jarring of any kind. So I thought, well, I'm not going to pressure myself into not having that Kit Kat or whatever mm -hmm. it is that I wanted. I'm just going to move it. And then you start to build up that routine of not eating all the time. Mm. right? And then you tackle that, okay, maybe I should have some fruit and nuts instead of a Kit Kat, right? <laughs> uh, and you can have some mini cheddars if you want on occasion, but... You know, you just got to, like, make small changes. And over time, you then make other changes because you see the difference, right? I think mm. that's what happened. I think there is, there's a shift, isn't there? Because at the beginning, you can start start to feel like, should do this, I should do that. And, you know, it's it, it, uh, Shine, we often say that we do a lot of shoulding on ourselves, <laughs> right? Um, but actually, there's something really empowering about... Avoiding a feeling of deprivation and choosing. Yeah. So it's that, it's not that I can't have it. It's not that I shouldn't have it. It's that mm, I can have it. I could choose to have it later, which actually makes it much more of an empowering rather than there's something out of control. But also you're not depriving yourself, see? Yeah. And that's the thing I, in my head, that was how I felt. Because when you go for these eating plans that you see everyone doing, they they want to do everything perfect. Actually, I had a conversation with someone about intermittent fasting and I told them what I was doing and they said, oh, that's not intermittent fasting. And I said, it doesn't have to be perfect, right? Mm. It just has to be in the range of where you are, right? Uh, like I start my day with a coffee with milk and sugar. And I know that sounds insane if you're intermittent fasting, but it's like 60 calories. It's not the end of the world. I don't like a lot of milk. Um, you know, you're going to get through 60 calories just walking around or sitting and it, and also, I think post a diagnosis of cancer, like who wants to feel deprived, right? <laughs> if something gives you joy in the morning, if something starts your day off right, that's good for you, like that's where you want to be. Like you don't yeah. want to be, you know, kind of like trying to shovel through a morning and like just looking at a half a you know, a grapefruit <laughs> that's just sad looking. You know, unless that half a grapefruit makes you feel feel really good and then it's thing. then that's an amazing thing but yeah i mean i think there's there's something about finding joy isn't there 
Like yeah. what really brings you joy and then those things that you eat that you're like, actually, that wasn't that great. And, that, and that. that actually happened to me a lot. Uh, in 2019, I had a lot of taste changes because of my graft versus host disease. So I started to limit the foods that I could eat because everything tasted disgusting, actually. Mm. Uh, so I got to the point where I actually couldn't eat anything or even retain water. And that's what ended, I ended up in hospital for that. Right. Ooh. But um, after that, it sort of taught me that all of these things that I thought I enjoyed eating when I tried to eat them again, they were actually still just really not nice. It, things like uh, any factory packet sugary content thing, you know, whatever you want, Frutellas or mm -hmm. Cadbury's bars, they just taste of sugar to me now. They don't actually taste of chocolate. It's just sugar mm. or whatever flavourings they put in there. And I thought to myself, well, do I need that then? You know, and I just sort of moved on from it. And I do on occasion have nice chocolate. I buy nice chocolate now. Yeah. And I have a square. Yeah. Instead of a bar of, of fruit and nut <laughs> or whatever it is. Um, but, yeah, you just make these tiny contextual changes and, and you, uh, you'll see the difference. And then you're compelled with the difference yes. to just keep doing it. Yeah. So where are you on your, you know, um, like how much have you lost at the moment? And where, how are you feeling about where you are now? I'm feeling really good, actually. Um, I uh, So I started... What I'm currently doing, um, let's say mid-June, mm -hmm. and since mid-June, I have lost 41 and a half kilos um, just by calorie restricting, not not amazing calorie restricting, just 1,500 calories a day, um, being careful with the choices I make for those 1,500 calories. But, you know, if I want a McDonald's cheeseburger or whatever, you know, I have ha have had those. Yeah. Um, and I did intermittent fasting, but... Uh, it that worked for the way that I eat and and you know conduct myself in general. So I I don't usually wake up and eat. Mm. Uh, I probably would go to late morning or lunchtime. So I just capitalised on that and I was able to move that forward and make it longer and longer periods. Um, and I can probably go to six seven pm without eating solid food with no problem. Oh. I don't do that. Okay. <laughs> um, See, I am a morning eater. Like, and you know, I've heard that this is DNA encoded. Really? Yeah. And so, you know, they did a bunch of research. Oh my God, in the 80s, they were really hot about this. Like, every child needs to have their cereal in the nope. morning, and otherwise, <laughs> they're not going to study at school. But actually, that's only for morning eaters. That if you give breakfast to someone that isn't a morning eater, it's not going to make them feel good and it doesn't have the same detrimental effect. Like me, if I am not fed in the morning, I'm a gremlin. See, like, I have to have coffee, but not food. Oh, yeah. wow, no. <laughs> and I need toast. That was so... So I've I've also lost some weight that um, I, I ballooned for me during lockdown, which was stress eating. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And the thing was, it worked. Like, I was under a lot of stress, and to some degree, it got me through some really tough times but then came the point where I was like okay but what I did was I focused on um relaxation right so that I could adjust my stress behaviors because it's it's that fuck it oh yeah. you know what I've already had one biscuit fuck it I'll just have the lot or you know and that's actually coming from adrenaline that's coming from you you're overwhelmed you've got too much on your plate and so what I really focused on was trying to look after myself like on a really really basic level yeah. and then from that the weight started to 
shift. Um, and but have you noticed that 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 attitude mm. is everywhere? Everyone seems to have that fucking attitude at the well, moment. I mean, everyone's almost super everything. stressed. Yeah, yeah. And I and I noticed something similar, and I was thinking, it's that reaction that you have that you have to control, right? Because you. You know, you can do it anyway. People lose their temper now outside and the people are getting into fights for minor, trivial things. You know, and it goes from that extreme to the extremes of, oh, my God, I'm just going to smash in this cheesecake, you know. And, and actually, that wasn't enough, so I'm going to go and have something else. Mm. Um, so, yeah, sometimes you do have to really control yourself. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, last night I did have some cheesecake, actually. But, um, yeah, like in moderation, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think a lot of that comes from when you're feeling good about yourself like then it's not about it's about choices not about like good and bad yeah yeah it's kind of like oh like I fancy this like this is this is good like yeah last if, night I if, had some comfort food. <laughs> but if 80% of the time you're making good choices yeah exactly and 80% of the time I'm like trying to tune in and go what do I really need and actually what I really need is some kale like actually that's going to make me feel better I have to say I'm going to admit that that never has occurred to me ever oh I love it I love it but I like it when um I don't have to wash it I'm lazy with my kale eating so I do get like a more expensive pack of it that's (laughs) pre-washed and then (laughs) I'm a lazy eater um love cooking so Victoria's here she's joining us over zoom Victoria is any of this so you work with people that are coming into a part of their lives where they want to um explore losing weight any of this conversation sound familiar to you Absolutely. And it's so refreshing to hear you talk to me, actually, and your approach to this. It's it's lovely. So, yeah, so I, I, um, I'm I a dietitian and I support people through um, intuitive eating, which is changing their relationship with food. I see most of them are chronic dieters and they've come to my door and they want a, they don't want to embark on another diet because it's for numerous reasons and obviously they're here and they want to make changes and you've, you've really hit the nail on the head actually there's loads of things you've talked about there one is um the reason why they want to diet which i think is something we we need to explore um and also how we go about making healthier changes and you've talked a lot about uh, small changes haven't you and that's yeah. really fundamentally the key here i think we live in a we live in a world where or we live in this culture that assumes we're all like robots and that actually making multiple changes is easy. And we're led to believe that our brain is capable of making these changes. And we're sold that this change is easy, but actually making change is really hard, isn't it? It's effortful for the brain. And if we make too many changes, we feel overwhelmed. Mm. We're overwhelmed, we have to rely on willpower and we only have a finite supply of willpower. Yeah, you can't do it all the time, can you? Exactly, and and we can't, and I think, What's really sad about diet culture is that it's almost setting us up to fail sometimes when you go on these real, um, very rigid diet plans. And actually, that's what you've talked about, Jamil. You've said, actually, um, I'm not restricting everything. It's about finding that balance. And that's exactly what the key is, because we know there is a cycle of, of deprivation and binging. It's a really known cycle. If we deprive, we have this scarcity mindset. We will deprive ourselves for, low, for so long, but our body's going to think, you're putting me into starvation mode. I'm going to make you eat. And your body will take over and do exactly what it needs to do. So if we start to deprive ourselves of all of these things, 
we end up failing but actually we're not failing and i think this is what's really i want people to realize that if a diet doesn't work for you it is not because you don't have willpower it is not because you have failed the diet has failed you it doesn't work for you so does it is it if your body wants Sorry? something you know if you're craving fish and chips which actually when i did that keto style diet where i had to measure everything by the gram it was ridiculous but i used to crave fish and chips which is basically protein and carbs isn't it really if yeah. you think about it um mm -hmm. but it had to be fish and chips you know to satisfy whatever mm -hmm. craving and it's just insane that, to, to think that that's a normal way of, of dealing with it that's yeah. not normal is it your body will your body will do what it needs to do i think yeah. that the, the we have less control over our weight than we are led to believe. Diet culture tells us um, that if you eat a certain way, you will get the correct body size for good health and it is attainable to everyone that has the willpower. And, and that's so far from the truth, actually. Your body will has a primal drive to survive, to survive famine. So if you're putting it into a starvation mode, it will do whatever it, it will work tirelessly to prevent that. It produces certain chemicals, certain hormones to make you eat. There are chemicals that it will make that your body produces to make you crave carbohydrate because our brain only uses carbohydrates, the only source of fuel that it can use. So if you're depriving your body of glucose, your brain is going to make you eat carbohydrate at some point. You might restrict it for so long, yeah. but fundamentally your body will win. And I think that's what's really difficult in today's diet culture we're led to believe that if we work if we eat a certain way with enough willpower we will get the results we want and it's not that black and white at all i think that, yeah sustainability is huge yeah, yeah and yeah. and that um resisting what you need is again like an energy going out that we you know especially post-diagnosis you, you don't want that energy you know, yeah. being sucked away into the vortex. But that also makes me feel better because sometimes I I like to eat until I'm stuffed. Like it is really, really in me. So I have this big salad bowl and I fill it and I let myself eat until I am done and if oh. half an hour later I'm still hungry and there's some left, I have put it in the fridge, I go back and I keep eating but I make sure that the food that I'm eating is like lovely delicious yeah. but also like really healthy like I'm not it's so but you know you've made me kind of reframe that because you know the part of me is like oh what's wrong with me that sometimes I just want like a massive plate of food um <laughs> and I'm like you know I'm, I'm not that big um, but yeah what he's trying to tell you yeah and I think if you think back to when we're toddlers or you see toddlers, they they eat intuitively all the time. If they're hungry, they scream or they shout or they'll make it known. We feed them. When they're full, they turn their face away. They are listening to what their body's telling them. But as you know, with life and everything, we we've we've lost that ability. And a diet culture will tell you they tell you what you should and shouldn't eat. The diet plan will tell you what you should and shouldn't eat. But actually, what you've just described there. Uh, Tatum is you're listening to what your body's telling you and some days you're a lot hungrier than others yeah there's nothing wrong with that your body's saying I need a bit more energy today because I did x y and z yesterday so you feed it and I think what's really important is that you don't pass judgment on what's happening in mm -hmm. that moment and, and one just... day of that is not going to undo 
all the other work you've done. Absolutely. Yeah. No. And actually, that's my day that I often eat a ton of vegetables because yeah. I've, like, put them all in there. Um, yeah. Everything that I, I can think of. Well, do you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's about satisfaction as well. You know, when you talk about eating food, um, again, there are two things to not binging. One is eating so we're adequately nourished, we feel satisfied. But eating so we feel satisfied. You know, one is we feel physiologically full but also we're satisfied and they're mm. both really important you know i hear clients all the time eat a bowl full of salad and then worry why they go back for more chocolate or yeah. they go and eat something else but actually you're not satisfied not you people yeah. are not satisfied enough so they go actually i'm not i've not got my fix mm-hmm. so give yourself the fix and you talked earlier about good and bad foods and oh you know i think it's lovely that you're i, I encourage all clients to move away from those the terminology because we it's we judge ourselves don't we and again diet culture will give you a list of rules um and a list of good foods and a list of bad foods and inadvertently we're judging ourselves you know how many times have you have you said it or have we heard people say god i had a bit of a naughty day today or you know we say it all the time don't we and actually what's naughty about nourishing your body and some days giving it a bit more yummy food if if we can remove the the hierarchy of good and bad foods it takes away the idea that we number one deprivation you've talked about that we take away the idea of deprivation or the feelings of deprivation and we take away the potential um opportunity to overeat because Mm. if we class food as good and bad those days when you said jamil you had cheesecake last night if you consider that a bad food or what clients tell me if they consider it a bad food, they think, well, I've blown it today. Let's eat the whole cheesecake. So then they always gorge <laughs> and overeat on this food because they're thinking tomorrow's another day. Mm-hmm. I'll start, I'll be good again tomorrow. So today I'll just go all out. Yeah. And, and actually when we label foods, it actually inadvertently makes us overeat on some occasions. People often, we talk about the last supper mentality. And again, you might hear this or you might. Um, so if somebody's going to embark on a diet, a week or two beforehand, you're, starting, you're nodding already yeah. in the studio. Yes. They know what I'm going yeah. to say. And they think, well, I'm going to start a diet in a week's time. So I'll have all my nice meals. I'll get all the nice foods in because I'm not going to eat it again for however long. Mm-hmm. And you most probably consume far more calories in that session or that week or two weeks or whatever it is that then negates what you're doing for the next few weeks. Yeah. And we know we then deprive ourselves. So we have these feelings of deprivation, which then eventually, and we're starving our body, that scarcity mindset going on, our body's thinking, I can only do this for so long, so let's make them eat. And they make you eat. Mm. But what they do this time, what your body does this time, is it thinks, I'm not going to go back there again, or he or she's going to make me, they'll starve me again. So in fact, I'm I'm going to make them eat a bit more to put on a bit of extra weight just in case they make me do that again and that's why with each subsequent diet it can be harder and harder to lose weight long term Mm. because your body thinks i'm going to get extra stores built up just in case so to kind of get out of that cycle of i mean that is a hellish cycle that you just described (laughs) and i've been there um one of the things that i found that's been useful is like cultivating curiosity so um, being a big morning eater, um, what I've discovered is that I, I've been trying to chart what 
my body actually needs and wants in the morning and what I need and want in the morning. And we've come to a compromise. So I am a big toast person. Um, I would have everything fatty on top of that toast (laughs) that I could get my hands on. Mm -hmm. So what I've done is not in a deprivation kind of way, but I've picked a particular type of bread that makes me feel good. Mm. Um, I have it in the freezer, so I don't snack half a slice all through the day. I do the same. You do? Yeah, that, oh, that's to end. And I say <clears throat> my guideline is no more than two slices, but the thing that my body loves is muesli with no added sugar, and I put in uh, frozen fruit. So if I have muesli in the morning, I actually don't get hungry for a lot later, but it doesn't satisfy me, who's a toast Mm -hmm. person, so I let myself have double breakfast. (laughs) Yeah, but because (laughs) of that, I have one slice of toast um, as like my mid-morning break. So I have the thing that's nourishing in the morning, then I have my toast to look forward to, and it just sets me up for the rest of the day but it took a lot of curiosity like what do I need like I love olive oil do I need it all over all of my vegetables or actually is just three top drops of truffle oil over the top maybe I saute with water and then have a little soups on of something else later so it's been a lot about being really curious about what my body really likes and and I think that's that's what's really key because again I think for change to last we need to be intrinsically motivated Mm. so we need to have enough of an argument to make that change and that very much goes back to what are our core beliefs and values about something because if we're intrinsically motivated that then that would then affect our behavior so for example if you genuinely enjoy exercise in the morning for example because it makes you feel good then you're intrinsically motivated to keep that exercise up and similarly if you genuinely like the taste of a bit of oil on your on your salad you're going to continue that aren't you mm-hmm. what the and so the the problem can come is if we are extrinsically motivated because that's what isn't long lasting and i think that's when you go back to terms of making changes if it's trying to have the balance of everything, isn't it? But we need to be intrinsically motivated to for that behaviour to continue. And, and that's how something makes you feel. So how that food makes you feel, does it satisfy you? Does it make you feel good? Does it make you feel strong? You know, I, um, a few years ago, started doing some weightlifting. And, you know, for years, I used to go to the gym, pound the treadmill, and I hated it. But I was extrinsically motivated because I knew that's what you should do or you know, 20 years ago, that's what I was going to do to lose weight. You know, we've all been there. And when I started exercising, I felt physically and mentally strong. So then intrinsic, there's an intrinsic motivation there, isn't there? There's di- there, there's a different reason. Yeah. Um, and I think when you come back to, to, to food and, and behavior change, it's actually what genuinely drives you. What are your core values and beliefs around yourself? What do you want to do? So if you want, to, if you believe you, you deserve to be nourished with good food, you're going to nourish yourself with good food. If you feel that you're not worthy of it, then that's another, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think that feeling worthy of making good choices for yourself is massive. And yeah, when my um, sense of worth goes down, my Mm -hmm. weight goes up. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's like finding that um, 
yeah. we do this. We're not. We're not. Yeah, this. absolutely. Yeah. But really finding that sense that. of um, self care and yeah. self compassion. So, absolutely. But so like, we, I talk a lot about self care, and we talk about an emotional toolbox. And people talk about emotional eating, don't they? As it being a problem. And if you think about it, emotional eating serves a purpose. It has a very has a very important function. If that's your only self-care activity, why would anybody stop emotionally eating? Mm. It's their coping strategy. You described it earlier. It helped you through times of stress. It has a very important function. The question is, if it's your only way of self-care, then that's when it can be a bit harder, isn't it? You know, and it then defeats, or it's a barrier to your long-term goal. But actually, so we talk a lot about um, emotional eating in the sense of, I don't see emotional eating as a problem. It's more a self-care problem. And if we we often use food to numb our feelings, mm-hmm. to cope with feelings, stuff again, them down. Really normal <laughs> behave. It's a really normal behaviour. It's if, again, it goes back to is that your only self-care activity? And I again with your emotional toolbox. If you can fill your emotional toolbox with other acts of self-care, self-compassion, there's less space for. Re- there's less space for food, isn't there? Yeah. But I and think never feel guilty about using food. Of course it has a function. And it goes back to our childhood. Again, you, you're, I, I, I do it with my own children still. I try not to, but not so much now. But when they were younger, if they fell over, yeah. you'd distract them with a biscuit. I mean, what does that tell them at a young <laughs> age? You can soothe your emotions with food. Yeah. I did it. And I'm a dietitian, hey? But we're not, <laughs> no, no one's perfect. But I, I remember that as a child myself yeah you know, but it's that motivation that piece isn't it and i i so wanted we, to bring it's, it's the motivation like people yeah. the self-care that you're talking about starts with understanding either your motivation or what you want which is a goal which you also mentioned right yeah. and that's how i started i started sitting here thinking what is it that i actually want mm. and what are my goals truly you know like do i want to look like arnold schwarzenegger no do I want to be slim? <laughs> yes, right? And I didn't actually define it other than contextually based on my weight, where I was and where I thought I should be. And that was all mm-hmm. I did, right? And you were talking about the same thing. And and then you address the eating habits once you've decided, this is the thing that I want. Because mm. that's what I did. I was thinking, I need to exercise. Yeah. I need to... And yeah. on the exercise front, I wanted to bring Sarah into the conversation. So, um, Sarah, can you tell me a little bit what was going on in your life when you were diagnosed? Um, so, sorry, I've got a bit of a cold, which okay. is like snuffling oh, no. in the background. Um, so, I was diagnosed in 2018, and um, I was working in London, living out in Surrey, so I was commuting to and from town. Um, I was actually expecting my second child when I was diagnosed. Um, and so things were kind of not really right. Um, I was still exercising a lot, actually. And I did think initially that it was the exercise that was causing the symptoms that I was getting. So um, I kept going to him from the hospital and it took me quite a long time to get a diagnosis. Um, and eventually they did diagnose that I had cervical cancer. And um, at that point, I was 19 weeks pregnant. And so um, I everything just kind of came to a halt, mm. as I'm sure it did with you, Jamil, as well. Um, and it was just that waiting period to find out exactly how serious it was and um, what the treatment was going to be. Um, and from an exercise point of view, I definitely 
wanted it but didn't feel like it at the time um and then i got my diagnosis um luckily it was still early stage cancer but it was quite advanced um and quite large so i was very quickly put into chemotherapy um and i was determined to keep control of my body because exercise was my control and i think a lot of people that i've spoken to and the clients that i work with now they find the same thing um it was a way for me to feel in control of my body when so much around me was being controlled by other people and so um i tried to do my park run i was a big outdoorsy person i still am i take all my clients outside because i see the huge benefits that it has on their mental health as well as their physical health um, and also it's COVID safe, although we did do it before that, I might add. Um, and it, I tried to keep it up for as long as I can. And I must admit that at that point, I was not, I did not do the job I do now. And I didn't know the true benefits of exercise during treatment. So when things got really, really bad and I'd had surgeries and chemo and radio all at the same time, I was literally bedridden. So I couldn't go much further than walking. Um, I know now that during treatment, if you're able and you're and you're well enough, that actually exercise has huge impacts on your cancer-related fatigue, on nausea, on on all of the side effects of treatment. Um, so for me, if I'd known that at the time, I think perhaps I would have continued um, doing a little bit more because I definitely my body was craving it a bit like Victoria said about the food I remember just eating plates of broccoli because that's all my my body wanted yeah. and sometimes that was hula hoops but you know <laughs> yeah. it was two different things um, and I can definitely relate to the, the feeling of, of craving things and um, from a more exercise point of view as well I have to say I when I was under sort of treatment there were there were moments where I tried, like you, aggressively clinging to my routine. You know, I was up at seven every day, like I would be for work. Uh, and when I was already in that sort of exercise mode, which for me was really only just walking um, a lot, I tried to aggressively stick to the walking. And even when I was in for my transplant, they had a bike there, so I was there oh, on the bike. So <laughs> um, and I and when I got home, I continued that routine. You know, yeah. uh, walking or, or just being up early and doing the normal things to try and make sure that I was always in control and I could measure as well. Because the yeah. measurement bit was the psychologically the measurement bit for me was was where I needed to live. I think. Yeah. Um, but I wish I had done more exercise and made probably more effort to lose weight earlier. But I, I at the time psychologically i didn't have the capacity to deal with it yeah, I don't think. and i think you have to it's about priorities as well yeah. you know like the exercising during cancer treatment is not necessarily about progression it's about maintenance of a fitness level that you want to continue to have during your treatment so that you can tolerate it better yeah and i think you know weight loss is absolutely incredible the lot a lot of the clients that i work with now you know the purpose of their treatment of their exercise now is to help them kind of tolerate some of the ongoing treatment that they're on to help them feel mentally much more in control for their own self-confidence and as a result of exercising and eating better they do lose weight but their their main goal is actually to to feel more like themselves really mm -hmm. um, and to get away from the walls of the hospitals and the houses mm -hmm. that they spent so much time in particularly around covid and to get outside and just feel like themselves for you know an hour long each week i think that there's something about um 
especially if you've been quite active before and maybe your energy or maybe physically you're unable to do some of the same things that you did before it can feel it can sometimes exercise can remind you of what you don't have access to um and do you find that some people um resist then doing any exercise because you know if they used to be able to run a half marathon every Sunday morning and then suddenly they're like completely out of breath and you know walking to the corner shop feels like that marathon um do you find that they sometimes will take a step back more because it isn't it doesn't look the same as it did before I think you make a really, really good point. Um, And one thing that I do say to my clients, and it can be a little bit hard hitting, and I don't mean it to be, but your post body cancer is very different to your pre body cancer, your cancer, sorry, your body pre cancer, I'll get it right in the end. Um, It has been through so much. And you have to treat it with respect and understand that it needs the right food to nourish it, to repair a lot of the damage the treatments have um, have caused it. But also we need to rebuild it in a way that is going to ensure it is um, living for longer and tolerating the additional treatments that it might need in the future. And so what I try and do with my clients is to make sure that they're rebuilt almost from zero back up to where they were and and stronger but like victoria quite rightly pointed out it takes time to do that and patience and it needs to be done progressively Mm -hmm. particularly post-cancer treatment and depending on various different factors that that person might have been through through their treatment but it it is kind of a patient weight of seeing that rebuild but it does happen and i've got ladies who you know they're lifting a lot of weight they are using barbells kettlebells they're so strong and then other people who are running half marathons again but i used to be a really big runner i've had um radiotherapy to my pelvis my oncologist said to me don't you dare run more than 5k because your hips will shatter and and i was like really um and i know now what i know And I know that I can rebuild my pelvis through various numbers of strengthening activities. And yeah, I can run more than 10K and it hurts a little bit, but I don't need to run a half marathon. I've got loads of other things that I like doing. I like cycling. I like lifting weights now, which for me is a bit like Victoria is a new thing that I I love. used to like run and run and run and run. And now, you know, 20 minutes of weightlifting and I feel incredible. And it changes the body in a different way. I think there's that um, it's again kind of thinking about that new body and finding a sense of exploration inside it so it might not be the exact same things that you liked from before it might be a new set of things and actually taking it as an opportunity to maybe try new things out um I know for myself I had just done my yoga teacher training so I was kind of at the fittest that I had been right before I was diagnosed and I have a memory that cannot be a real memory but it's clearly how my body has arranged this picture but I would go back into yoga classes and the picture in my mind is of me body crawling across the floor onto my yoga mat and then just resting there while the rest of the class was doing their things. 
popping in for a couple and then resting again. So I do remember being like, you know, the body, the body crawling in, um, I don't think really happened, but I, I did, if I made it onto my mat, even if I did nothing, I was like, yes. Yet score, you yeah. know. I and, took and up yoga not... as well, doing this yeah, during treatment, too. and it, it was so. I only committed to one lesson, right? Because I think it's a man thing, I'm sure. But uh, I committed to one lesson, and I wasn't convinced at first, you know. But I just kept doing it, and I ended up doing it for like three years or something. Mm. And I even managed to set up a uh, yoga class at work, um, and managed to rope my employer into getting every other, uh, you know people in my office to do it as well, and they helped fund it. And excellent. Yeah, it was excellent, and uh, and and it just goes to show like that small change just yeah, one thing yeah. and that and it really shows doesn't it how again initially that was an extrinsic motivation for you to do the class because you thought you should but then it becomes an intrinsic motivation which keeps you doing it because mm. then you see the cube you realize the benefit for yourself yeah. and that's what keeps you going isn't it but it's yeah. a small yeah. i think so much of it is to do with small changes because they come sustainable don't they but They're we want everything now see that's what the society is <laughs> well, that's that we've society. Built. it's like the amazon buy now button isn't yeah. it we, yeah. You know, we want it all now and actually... Deliveroo, everything. Yeah, exactly. But we've all described, haven't we, the importance of small steps. And, we, and research shows that that's what works. Yeah. You know, it, we, I think for long-term changes, they need to become automated. And to become automated, they need to be simple and small. Oh, I like yeah. that. I did hear about someone who used to sleep in her running clothes <laughs> so that she could literally wow. just throw off the bed covers in the morning and go for her run. She was like, she didn't want any impediments in the way. But I, I wanted to ask you, Sarah, so tell me about you, because you're... Um, you were doing a different job before and you have now changed your whole life. Like, to, how and how are you feeling at the moment? Apart from a bit coldy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, um, so I used to work in PR. I used to work in, in London, um, commute every day. And then the last day in my office, I remember very clearly, I wasn't planning to leave at that point, but the next day I went to hospital and they found my cancer. And fast forward kind of, I think, 10 months, um and i was due to go back to work and i was thinking oh god i don't i don't want to do this and a lot of my recovery was based on exercise so i joined an exercise class about three months after i finished my treatment it took me i like you jamil i did yoga that was my first step because i didn't feel i could do much more and that mentally was amazing as well um and then i joined a strength-based class that was outside um with a load of ladies and that really helped build up my confidence and then um about three months after that i thought actually there is absolutely nothing for people like me who have recovered from cancer where there is an appropriate setting and the right training um so that i feel safe doing the exercises that i'm doing you know having been scared off by the comment from my oncologist about my my hips i was very wary of what i could and couldn't do so i looked into it and actually it was quite a straightforward um training i did um, a science degree so i've got a little bit of a scientific background and i did my personal training um diploma in about three months um, and then went on and did two further levels of training that took me up to a cancer and exercise specialist. Um, So I work with people across all different types of cancer. I've actually got a client who's got non-Hodgkin's lymphoma as well, um, who I work with virtually. And then 
a lot of my clients had breast cancer, so I've done another qualification to help me train people specifically with breast cancer. Um, and I work with people all over the country and um, locally to help them before, so to prepare prehab for treatment um, during their chemo and their radiotherapy and then post-treatment as well to rebuild them. Fabulous. And, and what's the name of your company? It's called Get Me Back, which Get is exactly back. what exercise did for me. So, yeah, oh, it yeah. felt like a real um, rewarding job to do to, to give that back to people because I know how much it benefited me. Yeah. And, and like you were saying, feeling like yourself again, which is lovely. And Victoria, can you tell us if um, someone wants to find you where they can find you? Uh, so I have a website um, and it's victoriadupray.co.uk. So very simple. I'm a really poor Instagrammer, I'll be honest. That's on my list of things <laughs> to do. You know, when you keep dipping your toe in the water and then pulling it back out, that's me. <laughs> um, but I am on Google and yes, yeah, so I have a website page. Oh, lovely. And um, if someone wants to get themselves back, where would they find you, Sarah? <laughs> so my web address is www.getmeback.uk. And I'm at Get Me Back UK on Facebook and Instagram. Lovely. And um, I will I will be sending you a little, um, I'll find you on Instagram. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's wonderful what you are both mm. doing in, in terms of helping people, yeah, feel more like themselves, have strategies that are not all encompassing that are not draining but you know i think everything today was like tweaks not leaps you know and, and it's just small. as fast as what i've found in fact if not faster you know, right you, you don't lose 41 kilos you know like with and i you know i was smashing out mcdonald's and burger king on a, on a weekly basis you know if i wanted and 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 i've still lost all of that weight and i've i just made smart choices right and talking to these these ladies here is actually helpful for me because I was doing everything, you know, like this. Uh, but uh, finger in the air, why not? You know, and I just refined it as I went. But um, they've been able to crystallise my understanding of, of myself as well. So oh, it's really good. It's really good for me as well to, to know that I'm doing roughly the right thing. Um, yeah, it sounds it sounds like you're on a, on a great track. Thank you so much for being on the podcast well, today. We really appreciate it. And. Um, we look forward and actually on the on the shine page as well there is under resources there's a bunch of different yoga classes there's some pilates classes on there so there's other ones on there as well if you fancy checking something out maybe exploring something new you talked about relaxation at the beginning so can we just touch on that quickly i, I mean i'm uh i i, I probably Almost all cancer patients probably have a reasonable amount of anxiety relating to their disease yeah. or their life, you know, after post-cancer or post-treatment. Um, and it'd be really un good to understand, you know, what steps you took around relaxation because... I'm not the most relaxed of people. I think everyone will agree. No, I'm I'm a bit of a geek about relaxation. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so basically, I think that you can um, relax to support weight loss. So one of the things that when you relax it happens, you reduce adrenaline that stops that fuck it mentality. Mm. Um, so it it helps curb those stress behaviours. Also reduces cortisol. Um, and that is often associated with belly weight. Right. And when you're feeling genuinely like 
connected to your body, you tend to be able to go, mm, you know what, I'm actually really thirsty. Yeah. Um, you know what I really feel like. So it's a way of like tapping in, hearing yourself, hearing your body. And um, I, I think that it can be, that's a really, really amazing way. And I will end with this because I could talk about this for literally six <laughs> hours and that would be a whole other show. 